one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the Welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 341 for the week of Sunday, October 9th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Happy to be here as always, Sawyer. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hello, hello, and hello. And welcome as well, Gina Hurley. I'm here and ready to go. Well, we overcame many technical obstacles tonight to get this show on the road for you, so while the technology is cooperating with us, let's get into it. We're going to start things off with a continuation of last week, where we talked about Mark's visit to the 100-year Starship event held down in Orlando, Florida. And I believe you have some more continuation of this story and an interview for us? Sure do. And, uh, again, sorry I couldn't get the whole... Starship Study Symposium, but uh, little bits and pieces will do as well. So what do we got tonight? Well, everybody listening to Talking Space knows who this is, but I've got a guest that I wanted to bring on, somebody that I've met at media events at Kennedy Space Center and also ran into at the 100-year Starship Study Symposium in Orlando, Florida this weekend. A senior writer from Space.com, Clara Moskowitz, welcome to Talking Space. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. That was quite a weekend. Um, I looked at the agenda beforehand, and I was amazed at the variety and what appeared to be the depth of of what I saw in the agenda. What were your thoughts as you went through the weekend? You were there for the entire Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? I was, and I just wish I could have been in about four places at any given time. That was kind of a thought that I heard echoed by a lot of people throughout the weekend was they just had this whole symposium jam-packed with events, many of them occurring simultaneously, and it was it was so hard to choose just one session to go to at any given time because they were all pretty fascinating. Yeah, they were. Um, now, I know people have heard from me that I stayed in, in two basic tracks, on one on Friday and one on Saturday for the day, but you managed to get around and kind of sample a lot of what was going on. What were some of the things that stood out to you? Yeah, I did try to flit around and, and get just a little bit of everything, which was kind of fun. Um, you know, I really liked some of the panels on the ethical and moral and psychological concerns of, of mounting a multi-generational spaceship, you know, and then also kind of the ethical problem of, uh, you know, if we are sending people to a planet that may be inhabited, are we going to be infringing our biology on theirs and possibly, you know, terraforming some planet that has its own microbes, you know, is that wrong, is that okay to do? So it was interesting to delve into those topics. Um, I also really loved 
hearing about some of the more techie aspects, like the propulsion sessions, you know, just hearing about the debates of various kinds of nuclear-powered engine proposals and even more exotic things like antimatter engines and warp drive ideas. Now, did the thought cross your mind that aren't we just talking science fiction with a lot of this? Because so much of that is not in the inventory today. It definitely crossed my mind, and I think that it crossed everybody's mind who was there. That was kind of one of the fun parts of it, though, was, you know, it was addressing topics that you almost only hear addressed in science fiction from at least a rational, reasonable scientific standpoint. You know, not all of the topics have a lot of grounded data to support them, but people were, were approaching all of these issues from the standpoint of, can we do this? Is it possible? How would one go about researching this, testing this, experimenting with this? So so it was neat to kind of bring the science to the sci-fi in that way. There was an element of brainstorming that was part of the process, uh, you know, where these people came and presented. They they had obviously done that. For sure. And it was, it was just kind of neat to see the interactions that were going place between the audience and the different presenters. And, you know, it seemed like it was really a meeting of the minds for a lot of people who have been off working on this project, maybe in their spare time or their weekends or as a small, minor, fun kind of research project that they take on in addition to all of their normal, mainstream, regular research, you know, and and to put them all in this one room and have them go at it and talk to other people who share this kind of side hobby or passion was neat to see. I was impressed so many times with the questions that the... Uh that the people that were listening to the presentations had when there was an opportunity for question and answer, um, they obviously got way more, they were more prepared than I was for some of this. I was just kind of like a sponge soaking it up. and But there were some sharp people that were there just to listen. For sure. And that's what kind of made it neat. It didn't feel fluffy, even though some of the topics being discussed, you know, sounded so high in the sky. It was neat to hear that that almost all of the people that I heard just talking around in the halls and presenting and asking questions were really, you know, like smart-thinking people that had come to to really bring their minds to this topic, not just to laugh at it or or to have fun with it, but really to get down to business almost. Now, don't laugh at me, but here I've been part of a podcast for a couple years where we're always talking and giving our opinions and our thoughts and our reactions but one of the things that I, I wanted to, to really listen to and be part of, uh, in my case, ended up just being the final panel of the, uh, of the weekend, and that was communicating the vision. Did you get any uh, bits and pieces at, during the track sessions where they were on that subject? A little bit, yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, people would mention, oh, well, we need to remember the children, or we need to reach out to the students, the next generation. So I think... It was kind of always present hanging over the proceedings like a dark cloud, this idea that, okay, everybody in this room cares about this topic, but does anybody else, you know? That was kind of the question. So it's true that communicating the vision and and getting the message out there to the wider world who are going to have to maybe fund this project is going to be the sticking point. They had a a track that talked about destinations, and, and again, that was one I didn't get any exposure to, but my thought initially seeing it was, well, what difference does it make? We don't really know what's out there, so just go, just pick a place and try it and hope you're lucky. 
Yeah, I went to that panel, or at least one of the destinations, and and I found it really interesting, actually, because the Icarus Project, which I'm sure you've been talking about, but, you know, it's this, this project to kind of look into the particulars, does have people looking into, well, where should we send it? And they've got a list of potential candidates. Um, based on the Icarus Project's requirement of you want this ship to get there within 100 years of launching it, that has restricted them basically to uh, 15 light years away from Earth. So I think there's there's a few dozen, 58 maybe, planets, uh, I'm sorry, stars, within 15 light years of the sun. And so they, they're starting to look at some of the stars and say which would be the best possible targets. And obviously, like, the closer the better, but also planets that, I'm sorry, stars that have planets is is definitely another um, thing that they want to look for because that would probably be interesting in terms of the search for life and astrobiology. So I think I think they've got some candidates already. How about the thought of these? Uh, they were talking about starships as being colony ships or world ships. Do you think that they would really need to have a large, large, diverse group of people on an expedition like this or? Or could they go with a, a small core group? Any? Uh, did you get any any ideas on that uh, that general area? I think it's, it's it really depends on what the propulsion method is and the technology behind the ship itself. You know, because the the length of the trip really determines who you bring and, and how many people you need. So it's really way too early to say. But I guess a lot of people kind of have the the feeling that if we can do it at all. We're not going to be able to be able to do it very quickly, so it's going to be multi generational. In which case, you definitely need a you know a critical mass of people. There's a, a minimum number of people required to sustain a population over multiple generations. You know, we could be talking 400 years or something. In in which case, you definitely need a fully diverse, rounded society. Got one more question for you. How about the the idea of organizations? How do you think that uh, that we'll do starting out after after having this weekend, where one of the one of the goals of it is to the next step, I suppose, is probably to move forward to an organization that will that will keep this going. That'll that'll be a a springboard to to develop this idea of a starship. Yeah, that was one of the areas that I heard the most disagreement, uh, personally at least, uh, listening to the different presenters, because it seemed like everybody kind of had their own ideas. Some people said it's got to be non-profit. Some people said, well, it's got to be profit. That's the only way you're going to get money to fund this mission. Some people said it has to be a whole new kind of organization that doesn't even fit into any of the paradigms we already have. And, you know, a lot of people talked about needing to maybe even abandon intellectual property rights with regards to the technologies they're using to develop this just so that enough ideas can be passed around freely that you get get this off the ground. So I think it's such a huge monumental undertaking that it definitely sounds like it's going to require some creative thinking in terms of the organization that's going to plan it and, and carry it out. And I'll be curious to see what what kind of takes shape over the years. but. It sounds like DARPA will be handing out seed money to at least one organization to start looking into the issue next month, right? Yeah, I've got to admit that was part of the information that was available online that I actually did not look at, so I'm going to be doing that. 
And just to wind things up, I'm curious. It, it sounds like this is on your radar as a as a writer and a journalist. Um, am I right? Absolutely on my radar, partly because, you know, it's a real thing that's happening and partly because it's just so fun. That's the part that was really surprising. It it really is fun to hear these things and to, to have something to dream about. So why don't you tell us how people can find your the material that you write and follow you online? Great. Well, I write for space.com, so that's www.space.com. And um, if you're looking for the 100-year Starship articles, I suggest you either you know do an easy search on Google for a space.com article on that or, or go to our site, and they should be under the headings of technology and robots and the search for life, which are two of our subject areas. And I'm also on Twitter, at Clara Moskowitz. Well said. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. It's great to to talk to somebody that's such a a great communicator and uh, been working in the field and a senior writer from Space.com. Woohoo! Well, thanks so much for having me. It was super fun. And I think you can see why I was looking forward to talking to Clara because she communicates so well and gets so many great things across. I appreciate her contributing to us on that effort. Yeah, huge thank you to uh, Clara Moskowitz for spending some time with you, Mark. Mark, did you have a chance to? to I'm going to put you on the, the spot for a little bit. Did you have a chance to do a follow up on that on that seed money issue that uh, you you left with uh, when you were talking with Clara at all? Or I think absent minded probably applies pretty good in a general sense to me. Uh, no, I have not. I keep getting distracted with way too many fun, uh, interesting you know, space-type news and events things that I keep stumbling across. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll have, that'll, that'll have to be on my, uh, my radar then. Uh, one, of, one of the things I, I, will, I will say, you and I talked about, about this over the weekend, and uh, that was the, the fact that a lot of huge ideas came out of that, that whole thing. And I'm also wondering, too, what is going to be really, really coming out of, out of that program? I mean, we're going to have a lot of big ideas and a lot of, um, a, a lot of, uh, uh, new engineering, new techniques, new social mores even being looked at. Uh, I'd love to see how this whole thing is going to get tied together and will this ever be applied any, anywhere? I, I sure hope so because a lot of, a lot of smart minds are working on this gives us something long range to plan for that requires a lot of small steps in the near term and short and uh, midterm so uh, be interesting to see how it works out but i think we've got some more to talk about from these days and uh let's move on yep I, and again a huge thank you to uh clara moskowitz for uh, spending some time time with you mark uh again uh, we really do appreciate it thanks a lot all right, yeah, Mark, again, thank you for that great interview, and thank you again as well to Clara Moskowitz for agreeing to go on with you. All right, so the next story is another eyewitness report, except this one is from our good friend Todd Cecilio, who has filled in on the show before and also wrote all the music that you hear for the show, and we are very appreciative of everything he does, and he recently attended an event with STS-135, the final shuttle flight commander, Chris Ferguson, and he was there to cover it for us. So if we have that clip, why don't we go ahead and play that? Christopher J. Ferguson, native Philadelphian, graduate of Archbishop Ryan High School, graduate of Drexel University in mechanical engineering, captain of the United States Navy. 
assigned to the F-14 Tomcat, where he attended Navy Fighter Weapons School, Top Gun. He completed a tour of duty in the Persian Gulf in defense of the Iraqi no-fly zone on board the USS Nimitz. I couldn't help but notice a more relaxed Ferguson, winding down a tour of the country with his shuttle crewmates. We have been following his progress the past few years. At NASA, he was Capcom for four space shuttle missions, STS-118, 120, 128, and 129, and assigned to three space shuttle missions, STS-115, Atlantis, he was the pilot. For his last two missions, he became the commander, STS-126 Endeavor, and the final flight of the program on Atlantis, STS-135. Ferguson was introduced by Franklin Institute's chief astronomer, Derek Pitts. We watched highlights of the final mission, from the highs of the launch to the business of moving and stowage of 10,000 pounds of food and consumables, to joyful interaction with the ISS crew, highlighted by microgravity acrobatics. Lastly, the bittersweet return home and the final landing at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. The emotions were evident in the eyes and tone of the veteran flyer. The end of a 30-year program that seemed like it was canceled just as we hit our stride. In the words of Ferguson regarding Atlantis, To look at it, it's pristine, it's white, it's vibrant, it looks like it's still alive. And you want it to go again, and part of you is hurting that it's not. This machine has life left in her but we must sacrifice the shuttle and $3 billion per year to operate it to take the next step, a safer, more affordable system to get crew to the ISS. I think this is the direction we need to go in because it's going to enable us to do it a little more inexpensively than, than we can do. And I hate to say we, NASA, can't do things on a budget. We can do things on a budget. But I think what we need to do is save NASA's budget to go beyond the Earth orbit. And turn this business of, uh, and I would never call it routine, getting up to low Earth orbit. That orbit that's 220 miles above the Earth that the space station currently lives in right now. Turn this business over to uh, smaller, innovative companies that can think quickly, think on their feet, and come up with innovative solutions. And it doesn't have that kind of red tape associated with it that sometimes government organizations uh, have. So we're hoping for uh, quick results. Uh, very innovative thinking, perhaps new ways of doing things out of any one of a number of four different contractors right now that are uh, have taken a part of this uh, in this what we call CC Dev uh, commercial crew development. Uh, some of them are familiar names like Boeing. Some of them are unfamiliar names like Sierra Nevada. Although Sierra Nevada has been around for a long time, um, Elon Musk, a part of the SpaceX Corporation, you may have heard of him. I mean, this is a this is a real up and coming uh, company in the space launch business and turn this business over to them. So in effect, NASA's astronauts en route to the International Space Station would buy a ticket, buy a ticket to low Earth orbit and free NASA up to build a vehicle that will go beyond low Earth orbit to these destinations that that, uh, that include perhaps the moon, an asteroid, Mars. We always talk about Mars. We'd love to go to Mars someday. The technology is there. We just need the investment. We need the, the innovative solutions, this technology development that's going to enable us to go there cheaper and faster. Ferguson recently visited Northeast High School in Philadelphia, where a revitalized mock-up of a 1960s space research center called SPARC is used to teach students about engineering, operations, and the challenges of driving a space mission. Chief Astronomer Pitts asked Fergie about his feelings on education and the challenge of inspiring young people. Well, there's, there's a lot of emphasis placed on STEM right now, and, and you know, 
science, engineering, technology, math, you know, getting these kids interested at a young age. And I had, uh, I'm not going to answer your question, but I'm going to answer a question. <laughs> I, have, um, I have always been a proponent, uh, of course, of STEM. I think it's very important to keep young men and women engaged. But I, I also am a, a big believer, uh, because NASA has been very engaged with STEM. I mean, they have these outreach programs, which I think are very good. But I really think what motivates young men and women is not the promise of things that are going to happen. I, just like you cannot legislate engineering, you, you cannot order someone to develop a, a, a technologically evolved pro project in two or three years for this amount of money. Just as you cannot legislate engineering, you cannot force young men and women to be interested in science and math. They're interested in science and math from what they experience in the physical world around them. I personally became enamored with the space program when I, I saw my first book about how the Apollo rocket was put together. It was like, wow, it's, it's got all these stages and each rocket has its... And it wasn't just a story and it wasn't a promise of something that happened. It was our nation committing itself to build something. They were, there was hardware being built. You could see it, you could experience it, you could watch the test launches, the rocket firings on television. And it was that that was like, wow, this isn't just in a book. This is real. We are really doing this. Yes. And I think it's that kind of inspiration that really keeps the young men and women uh, going. Yeah. And, and, and not just the promise. And we, we really need to, as a nation, I think, commit uh, in the form of a 10 or a 20 year program to where we're headed to next in space. We, we need to have a destination, we need to have a goal, and we cannot allow that goal to be changed with administration changes, and we, uh, we need to stay very focused, and any change has to have full approval of Congress. So, and I think that is crucial, to, because we're, we're involved with programs that have 20-year horizons. They'll span five presidential administrations. And we have to be very focused and be, you know, be able to commit through those administrations to the end goal. A question from the audience about the challenges of a cloudy and precarious launch day invoked the personality and brilliance we get to love about our astronauts. And actually, even though it appeared that the launch was off and was back on again, we, we marched to a very narrow launch window. We, we can only launch inside this five-minute window, and it really is all comes down to timing. Was anybody at landing, by the way? Did anybody ever... So what happens just before the space shuttle lands, and I actually have a point here, so hang on a minute. Just before the space shuttle lands, the space station flies right over. And there's no coincidence there. I mean, it just happens because the space shuttle just came from the space station. In a similar fashion, we have to wait until the space station flies directly over the Kennedy Space Center before we can launch the space shuttle, or else we're going to spend days and days catching up to it. Uh, or, even worse, we launch it in the wrong orbit, which we don't want to do. Uh, so we have a very narrow launch window, and if the weather is not good during that five-minute launch window, we don't launch. Um, all we can do is hope that that giant hole in the clouds there happens to be over the Kennedy Space Center at the time that we, we hit our launch window. Uh, now, we did have another failure at 31 seconds, and you saw that that was uh, alluded to a little bit in the video, and that was the source of the two-minute delay. And that was something that was completely, to me, unexpected. I, I was not even aware of what the failure was. But you heard that the launch panel held at 31 seconds due to a failure. Mm -hmm. There's an automatic launch sequence, sequencer that watches all these parameters to make sure that the shuttle's in a good configuration to launch. Well, you, have you ever seen that little beanie cap thing that sits on top of the external tank and, and just before launch it, it swings out of the way? Well, one of the indications that would say that that thing is out of the way of the space shuttle, uh, they only got one of the two indications. So they held the launch automatically because of that. 
And it was only about a minute into this launch, I realized they were actually talking about the beating cap. They called it the GBA, the God's Bent Arm. And they're, they're holding the launch all the while. And we're approaching the end of this launch window. We can't hold beyond five minutes. We're already two and a half minutes into this. And I realized, wow, they're talking about that thing right out the window right here. And I can, I can turn my head and look at it. And, uh, you know, I, I was so tempted <laughs> to say, it looks good to me. Let's go. <laughs> But, but you have to let the professionals do their job and go through the motions. And they, they got a camera around, and they had they had, had two forms of verification, and that thing was in fact clear of the space shuttle because you didn't, certainly didn't want to impact it on the, on the way out. So that was the source actually of the two minute delay. But the weather was very questionable the entire time. I'm really surprised we went that. At last, the moment we've been waiting for: a stainless steel star cut from the original ceiling of Fells Planetarium was returned ceremoniously to the Franklin Institute after being flown 5,284,862 miles above Earth, an emotional crossroads from where a young Ferguson once dreamed of flying. With the human spaceflight program in uncertain times, Ferguson, in convincing tone, asserted that America would not fall behind. So it's, it's seeing that spark in these young eyes that I, I think really encourages me. You know, a lot of people say that we're losing our technological edge, and, and I, I, I beg to differ. I really do. I, I think we have just as much interest in, in doing great things uh, out there that we did back in Apollo in the early days of the space show uh, today as, as we did back then. The evening had a special meaning to everyone in attendance. A hometown hero returning to his roots bringing the American spirit of achievement and the message of promise back to his city. The commander of the last spaceship Atlantis in the first capital of the USA. Todd Cecilia, thank you so much for uh, bringing that uh, that interview to our attention and, and uh, sharing it with us, um, that whole session with uh, Chris Ferguson. He's touched on a lot of things in there, and one of them is, is obviously the future. Uh, he brought up a good point that the next step has got to be uh, a full commitment. It has to last, you know, several administrations, which is going to be kind of touchy. It has to continue through Congress, and it has to be bipartisan on that level, or it's not going to work. Uh, I loved when he said that. I also you know, recalling the uh, the the beanie cap issue. We were there, guys. <laughs> Watching that, and I, it just brought all of that back. I, I still recall standing uh, out there and watching that uh, just you know during our, our launch coverage there, Sawyer. That's what uh, I was just saying. You know, as the clip was going on, I was mentioning that, and it's funny because uh, Chris Ferguson and the rest of the 135 crew a couple of weeks ago were at the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum in New York, and mm-hmm. I was there and I got to talk with the crew, and you know, I told I was talking to Fergie, Chris Ferguson. And I was mentioning, you know, how I was with the media and everything, and I was telling him about, you know, talking to him about the beanie cap thing. And he said that we knew more than he did about what was going on. Yeah. The media well, we... knew more, knew as much, if not more, of what was going on than what he did inside the spacecraft that was going to hopefully launch and ended up launching, which I found very interesting. Yeah, we, I mean, we could we could actually see the condition of of the of that swing arm, and we we kind of saw it out of the way, and we we saw that that it was a it was a sensor issue. But uh, uh, he he touched on so much in that, and I have to really really thank Todd for, for that. Um, the other thing too uh, was 
he, he talked about the future and getting people involved and so on. Just as an aside, uh, NASA, I guess, uh, on October 4th announced that, uh, they are going to be looking for more astronauts. Uh, next month, uh, they're going to begin recruiting for another group of candidates. Um, they would open up app, the, an article I'm looking at by James Dean of Florida Today, uh, dated October 4, basically simply s- says that uh, they are going to be looking for applicants to uh, go to the ISS, but um, uh, this this uh, this next class is going to arrive to support uh, the new transportation systems, I guess, and uh, once once more. I kind of thought a little bit about uh, uh, something that astronaut Mike Barrett had said, that he felt the future was was rather bright. Uh, to be, it, it's a good time to be an astronaut rather than a, you know, a, a rather sobering and sad time. Uh, that we were going to get over this hump, whatever you know, the this this feeling of uh, not being able to launch. We were going to we were going to get over that rather quickly, and we would continue to uh, to do some good stuff. And uh, this optimistic note too that uh, uh, we are going to be looking for for new uh, for new flight crew. And uh, in case anybody's interested out there and they've got the credentials to do it, the uh, the website is if you want to apply um, is http astronauts dot nasa dot gov. So that'll take you right to the to the application. <laughs> Anybody else have any thoughts? Because that, that I'm sorry I missed that. That was just a really cool evening, it, it, and, and I'm sorry I, I missed that since I actually saw since we all were present during uh, Chris Ferguson's launch. I'd like to make the point that uh, I love hearing the astronauts talk because they've got a lot to say and a lot of valuable things to say from people that are inside and at the same time uh, want the much the same things that the public does. But if you ever get an opportunity to get around some of these top people in the field, do it. Indeed, like I was saying, I've had the honor to talk to the entire 135 crew after they came back, which was amazing. And these guys have some great, great stories to tell, which this is where I wish I had an hour where I could still just talk about that event and all the stories that I was talking about with everybody. That It was great. And I'd like to add that I think Chris Ferguson has already demonstrated that he is going to be a, a wonderful steward of the space shuttle program. It's the honor of being the last commander to fly. Um, I think he has the right sentiment, attitude, mix of um, historical perspective and ability to convey the importance of the program to others. I'm not saying other commanders wouldn't have lived up to that, but I just think he has the right acumen and presence um, about himself to, to do so. And he sort of fell into that position. I mean, don't forget, Steve Lindsay um, stepped aside from his job as chief astronaut to assign himself to the final mission, 133, which, of course, wasn't the case because we had to flip-flop some payloads and then assign um, ultimately one last mission, which was 135. So very much by the luck of the draw, he was chosen for, you know, such an honor. I mean... Not too many people can tell you too many spatial commanders in America, but I think his name will stick out certainly because he was last, but also I think because it's fitting because he truly embodies the acumen of really what a spatial commander is. Yeah, I, I think he was a great person to 
choose to represent NASA as they move forward as the final space shuttle commander. Now, I, I thought it was interesting that he brought up, at least in the clips that we heard, he also brought up, you know, the commercial vehicles. He said some you know, that you might not have heard of, like Sierra Nevada, although they've been around, and others that you have heard of, like Boeing, which brings us, in fact, to our next story, which has to do with Boeing and them wanting to use a vehicle that we've talked about in the past. And it was a U.S. military vehicle, which was basically a mini space shuttle called the X-37B. And apparently there are talks now of Boeing wanting to use this commercially? That's right, Sawyer. I'm looking at an article that was filed by uh, Guy Norris with Aviation Week. Uh, it looks like Boeing is looking at uh, studying some variants of the X-37B for potential delivery of cargo and perhaps crew to the International Space Station. Uh, it's, according to the article here, the, the, the plan is believed to be aimed at uh, providing a larger uh, cargo capability uh, to the uh, CST-100 as uh, well as, as possibly uh, carrying crew. I understand, too, that this vehicle, if, if they modified it, could possibly carry up to seven crew, crew members. Um, it looks like they Boeing is aiming their multi-cajillion dollar guns right at the Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser. So it should be – if this actually comes about – um, I, it's it's going to be very interesting to see which one really, really wins out. A couple of thoughts come to mind with this. First off is the size of the X-37B. At last check, it wasn't a very large vehicle. And the second thing that I was thinking of was similar to what you just mentioned, is that Sierra Nevada has their Dream Chaser, which, when you compare the two, look eerily familiar to each other. Could there possibly see... Could there possibly be some implication out of that? Well, you got to remember too, Sawyer. The, the the Dream Chaser is essentially the HL twenty, which was mod, which was uh, brought to brought to bear by NASA back in the nineteen nineties. Um, it was also to augment uh, the shuttle capability of delivering crew to the International Space Station. Unfortunately, the program was killed. Uh, Sierra Nevada picked it up and is now running with that ball. Uh, the X-37B, again, it started out, I also think that this started out as a NASA program and was then ported over to the Air Force. Um, it, uh, they're talking about a modified version of this thing. So, you know, again, we're not looking at the exact, you know, the exact configuration. The, the new one that they're looking at could possibly be, be bigger. Uh, obviously it's going to have to support crew, um, to be, you know, and, and support, uh, a little bit more cargo. But I, again, I don't know what the cargo capacity of this thing, and I'm sure the Air Force is kind of sort of tight-lipped about that because then it would lead to more speculation of what this thing is doing. Which, by the way, I think, you know, if, if somebody could check me, I think the, the, the X-37B is actually still up there. 
Um, it was launched uh, some time ago, and and I believe it's nearing the end of its design capabilities, which I think is like 200 days. Of so its it, second flight, correct? Yes, yes, its second flight. The first one was was declared a, a, a unmitigated success. So this should be kind of uh, – it's going to be interesting to see what Boeing comes up with, um, what variant of the X-37B comes up with to support – uh, cargo and, and crew to the ISS. And again, I still say that they're aiming their guns right at Sierra Nevada here. So, uh, again, <laughs> it's gonna be fun in the commercial, uh, in the commercial cargo and crew world. Just a quick mention, uh, thanks to Wikipedia, I see, uh, a little rundown on the X-37. And of course, they have the X-37A, the X-37B. And the X-37C, and it says in 2011, Boeing announced plans to develop a scaled-up variant, and they refer to the X-37C as being 165 to 180% of the X-37B, and it could transport up to six astronauts inside a pressurized compartment. And I remember seeing, and I'm, I'm looking at the, the same picture now on Wikipedia, but there's a, uh, a crewman in front of the X-37, uh, X-37B, I guess, but the OTV-1, the first launch, and the uh, the nose of the spacecraft is about waist level to this suited up uh, inspector on the runway. So yeah, that gives you a better appreciation of what uh, what the new vehicle could possibly be able to to do if Boeing is talking about you know, resizing this thing for uh, for later you know for for later use. So uh, again, it's. I'm wondering how too this this is going to affect the other other commercial players long term with this kind of capability. So see, I, just because the shuttle program is over, wings in space is is definitely not over by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm sure we'll be seeing both of, you know both the the Dream Chaser and this the uh, the modified version of the X-37B utilizing the uh, the shuttle runway. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't see it coming into common use. It may be usable for military purposes, but I don't think we're going to see it as a routine uh, flight vehicle. Hmm. Why is that? I'm just curious. I I think there's better ways to to launch people, cargo, whatever, to low Earth orbit, and it it doesn't involve putting them on on top of a rocket in a in a very complex vehicle that you're going to send it on a milk run when uh when it has other missions that could be flown for you know the better part of a year so you might be thinking this this is this might just be a red herring or or, or what <laughs> uh, it it may provide some i guess you call it backup capability for getting crew up and down to space but uh you know, I think it's a, a very unique long-duration, you know, flight vehicle that um, I guess you could use it for anything with the right modifications. But there again, you've got a man rate it and the, the launch rocket as well. Which, That's... looking at it, the launch rocket would be a Atlas V modified, right? Yeah, I would think so. And they're they're already talk you know, there's already talk about, about man rating Atlas five. So yeah, um, according to Wikipedia once again, uh the proposed launch vehicle would be the Atlas V evolved expendable launch vehicle. 
Right. So, um, we're, again, and there's already talk about possibly getting that up and going as a, uh, you know, as a man rated, uh, booster. So again, the future is going to get real interesting out there. Oh yeah. So we'll see where that ends up going with Boeing. <laughs> that was kind of catchy. <laughs> All right. So while we're talking about other future launch vehicles, when SLS came out, as well as pre-launch of STS-135 at a press event, there were talks going on about the possibility of Europe getting involved with the new space launch system, the Orion or multi-purpose crew vehicle and so on and so forth. And we were wondering how or if they could get involved. And it turns out that there's a chance that Europe may get involved. And what would they be building for the Orion? Yep, it looks like uh, the Europeans may be using a modified version of their automated transfer vehicle, or ATV, um, for the service module on the Orion. Uh, a report out of uh, nasaspaceflight.com said, uh, dated October 9th by Chris Bergren basically said that uh, the uh, Orion managers are really getting more and more interested in the idea of using ESA's ATV as a possible uh, service module section for the uh, for the Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle. Um, the uh, the ATV, according to the article, is about three times the size of the Russian Progress resupply vehicle, um, and it was built with a human rating role in mind. Um, however, the the human rating stuff. Basically, according to the article, says involved uh, uh, mating two or more of the, more of these things together as a mini space station. Um, so, but it, it looks like indeed that uh, uh, Orion managers are really, really interested in, in looking at this possibility. Uh, I believe the first real test for the Orion is going to come at the, uh, according to the article anyway is still scheduled for 2013. Uh, it's due to be launched on a Delta IV Heavy. Uh, and uh, we'll see how, how that particular flight goal goes. But I understand, too, that this, this particular Orion vehicle that will be participating in this will be a crew, in a crew-capable configuration as much as it can be. Um, so again, we'll just have to have to see where this all goes, but it looks like uh, the Europeans may get more and more involved in this program as things go along. And I'm sure this might be a cost saving measure as well. Uh, you know, the U.S. taxpayer isn't going to have to fit the, foot the entire bill for this particular spacecraft since some of this hardware may be made it over to, uh, uh, on the Orion maybe, maybe coming from, from ESA. So I, I still recall a gentleman uh, during the event uh, that that we that Sawyer you and I attended at uh, the launch of STS-135, again mentioning that, uh, where a, a gentleman from uh, from Europe put the question to uh, to Laurie Garver, saying, "How can Europe play a role in this?" And they, you know, Laurie kind of said, "Well, we're looking at, at possibilities and and so on, and how." Uh, Europe can indeed play a role in, in, in the new exploration program, and I think they may have just found a, found a, a seat at the table for sure. Just a thought. You mentioned the uh, the aspect of money and the fact that there would be funding from 
other than the U.S. for this. It kind of reminds me of one day I was out on the road somewhere and stopped to fill up for gas. Guy walks over and he says, hey, buddy, I ran out of gas and I'm trying to get to such and such. Can you spare a few bucks? There, There is a parallel. I, I'm I, Enlighten me, Mark. Well... You know, we, we like to think of, uh, each spacefaring nation as being, you know, powerful and, and able to control their own destiny. But this whole spaceflight thing is extremely expensive. And as we've seen with some satellites, experimental packages like AMS2, we're going to see more and more collaborative efforts. Uh, the, the 100 year Starship study again, you know, there was, there was, talk about collaboration in that as well. So uh, in, in some aspects, then, you know, and, and this might be really, really far out there, do you think we're kind of laying down the seeds for that kind of collaboration? Um, is, is this kind of sort of the beginning of that? And it might lead, if things keep on going the way they're going, they might lead to, you know, this... 100-year starship coming about, obviously not in our lifetimes, but maybe late, but the the groundwork is being laid down for it. It's a beginning, and we've certainly not at the beginning of the whole idea of, of co- countries working together and and obligating funding and, and coming through on plans. Uh, you know, this isn't anything new, but to actually see it on a, on a, on a spacecraft, I mean, when you put this at the pad, it'll be a an Atlas Atlas V derivative rocket, uh, the ATV component, a capsule, uh, presumably Orion or or someone else, and uh, you know that really is uh, an interesting mix. It kind of you know goes to show we've got you know it's even you mentioned the cars too it's even in our our cars those type of aspects I mean we may have a uh, you know a Ford or, or or GM nameplate on there but how much how many of those parts that are in that vehicle come from somewhere else so again this this is just sort of with the spacecraft here it's just sort of taking that that and i hate to use this word it's sort of taking that that particular paradigm to the next to the next level and i think it's probably a good idea because atv as far as i can recall and i haven't looked back in the development and history of it but it's got a great track record and it's a very capable spacecraft it it fulfills its mission yeah, so far i i i think it's you know, I'm, I'm just trying to go back in through my little onboard memory banks here, and I don't recall ATV ever having a problem. So it's proven itself. I, I think there's a few more still being slated for construction and and to be used. Um, and, and this would be a, a great uh, a great follow up follow up for the ATV. So bravo to ESA, and I hope this this marriage that's being Contemplated between Europe and uh, and uh, and NASA here uh, actually works out, and uh, uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, we've had bumps in the road before. I believe there's a there's a Mars mission that that we were supposed to do jointly with ESA that we may be bowing out of right now. So you know, in light of that, it might make people kind of sort of uncomfortable. Uh, to to commit to this, but 
you know, again, um, we'll just see what the future holds. But right now, I think this is a pretty good idea. It gets, again, our international partners on board with a new exploration initiative. Um, and, you know, again, I think it, 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 <laughs> it's obviously going to cut down on, on, on the money that the U.S. taxpayer has to foot, has to foot for this. So again, I think this is going to work. So let's wrap things up here on a happy note. How does that sound? Mark Kelly officially retired from the Navy and had a special ceremony held for his Navy decommissioning. And there was a very special guest who was there to help assist with the ceremony. Am I right? Absolutely. The guest was none other than his wife, Gabrielle Giffords. And I'd like to preface talking about this uh, greater with just the thought of the movie The Right Stuff. You know, you think of the astronauts as having the right stuff, and they certainly do. The men and women that have flown in space, the pilots, the commanders, the mission specialists, takes a great deal of bravery. But think about those that are behind them, those that are part of their family, the husbands, the wives, the sons, the daughters, the parents, the next-door neighbors. All of those people have to have a, a little bit of a, a worry. And one thing one would never expect would be for an astronaut to face a tragedy like Mark Kelly did at the beginning of the year of, of 2011 in January when his wife was so uh, horribly shot and, and her life literally on the line. But there's a, uh, a good ending to the story, at least to date, that the pictures that I see from the retirement ceremony show a just an absolutely beaming, beautiful, gorgeous face, happy Gabrielle Giffords at his retirement ceremony. And that's the sort of thing that uh, back in January and at uh, at KSC at the events prior to STS-134's launch, all of the discussions about whether Commander Kelly should uh, go ahead and stay as commander or be replaced, could he be replaced, all of those questions that we that we went over along with, you know, what was happening to his wife? Was she recovering? What would be her chances? How would she come through? And when you see the pictures, one from the Houston Chronicle of the two of them hugging after his ceremony and just absolutely smiling bigger than uh, bigger than you could ever expect just a few months ago. It's an awful nice way to see things go. And of course, you know, his retirement was to spend time with his wife to assist her with her recovery. And it just really stands as a testament to the character of both of them. I saw those pictures, Mark, of um, Mark Kelly at his retirement ceremony, which took place, I believe, um, at the Pentagon. Was it not? You know, what impressed me the most was all of the um, fanfare had died down, and there was just sort of that moment in time when it was him and Gabby Giffords together, just like the two of them. It seemed like everything else had just fallen away or faded off into the distance. And he's a guy who's a Navy captain. He's seen combat and, you know, he's been through a lot of crap and probably had a scratch quite a bit to make his way up to space shuttle commander. And with everything that he's been through, it's just amazing to me that his hero absolutely is her. And I just think it, it, it's just a nice, I mean, he's so humbled by her presence and her remarkable recovery, as so aren't so many of the medical community. But 
he especially just really, you can tell how much he he is in love with her. And I just think it's nice, again, that, you know, this generation of astronauts, they are not these hard-edged, you know, fly boys that were about, you know, who, you know, who's the biggest throttle jockey? They're definitely a much more balanced human being. And, you know, they have to be scientists. They have to be explorers. They have to be pilots or, you know, engineers or, you know, they have to be able to speak Russian. I mean, these are things that Mercury 7 would have never have done. And one thing you never really saw the Mercury 7 do was embrace their wives. So... I just thought that was that spoke volumes that really what kind of person he is, and so many of the more modern astronauts really too. So it was just it was just a heartwarming thing to see. And I know everybody remembers the stories about when she was in the hospital, and the question on on my mind and others, I'm sure, was um, is she aware of him? Does she know he's there? And he reported on a uh, I think on a TV news show that. Uh, that she had held his hand and she had had fiddled with his ring on his finger. And, uh, you know, it's such a long way from that to this. And uh, it seems so hopeless at times. And talk about courage. You know, somebody that suffers any kind of an injury like this and many other types of injuries, you have to be concerned about, I think, literally almost everything that you do. And, of course, the doctors are consulted and they – cleared her to travel when she was there for his uh, STS-134 launch, and I'm sure that uh, that they're still part of, of even what seems to be a, a small decision of taking a short trip cross-country. And so there's courage with that for both of them. I don't know if I could add anything to what's already been said. Uh, both of these individuals have just been... I mean, having ha- having what had occurred and having to deal with that, and just the way they they both of them dealt with it. I mean, even Mark and Gina, you both were were talking about uh, uh, Con- Congresswoman Giffords too during the, her uh, um, during her recovery. She was over there trying to be strong for her husband during that whole whole thing too. So and and of course uh, Mark Kelly was trying to be strong and strong for her, and again it it just showed how much these two really really care about each other. And uh, I wish both of them all the best. I really do, and I I really hope that uh, uh, Congresswoman Gifford's recovery continues. Indeed. So uh, I I think we're all glad she was able to make it, and wish Mark Kelly and Gabby Giffords all the best. And with that, I believe that brings this feel-good episode to a close. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us tonight, including Gene McCulka. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, Sawyer. And I have to, again, extend my thanks to uh, Clara Moskowitz uh, from um, from, uh, Space.com and and, uh, uh, Todd Cecilio for for that wonderful piece that uh, he allowed us to use. So, again, thanks a whole bunch. And thanks to you guys, too. You You guys are fantastic. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. We'll be back. And thank you as well, Gina Hurley. You bet, Sawyer. And once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be. There you are. (laughs) 